And I also, I don't know if you know, I carve a load of candy, which is a bit different for most people, but it's like science. Like I weigh it out. <laughs> I don't eat pasta or rice leading up to a race. And I've just got my quota of candy that I have to eat like when I'm like most insulin sensitive, like on the bike or just after a run in my prep sessions before I race in the three days before. And I really look forward to racing for that because I'm normally being like super strict leading up to like a key race and then I get I get to look forward to carb loading time. That was the 14-time half Ironman winner, 2016 7.3 world champion, and last year's 70.3 runner-up, Holly Lawrence. And this is her story on the Pacing Racing Podcast. Alright, what's happening everyone? Welcome back and welcome to the First Time Listeners. My name is Steven Langenhausen. I'm the host of Pacing and Racing, the podcast helping you reach optimal health and endurance through learning from the world's brightest health experts and the world's most talented endurance athletes. Now, first off, I want to sincerely thank all you listeners, especially those who all take the time to reach out on social media and to those who have been here since the beginning. It's been one heck of a journey and time flies because we are officially at the 100th interview for the Pacing and Racing podcast. And if there's one thing I can reflect on quite often in this podcast journey is that just 100 interviews ago, I was in my basement with a $40 microphone and a laptop, and I was YouTubing how to record a podcast tutorial without any expectations of going anywhere with it. Now, I did all the interviews around all my kids' nap schedules and would do early morning and late night edits, and by no means was it a cakewalk, but I look back now and I'm truly, truly thankful to chat with each and every guest on this show. So if there's any, any motivation I can pass on you guys is that you don't have to be good at something in order to try it out. Now, I thought I'd be the last person to have their own podcast, but here I am. And I mean, it takes total consistency. And honestly, you have to go into it for the enjoyment and learning aspect of it. And if you don't see the results overnight, then don't let it bum you out. Just keep putting in the grind, enjoy the process, and you'll amaze yourself with the outcome in the end. But enough about me and my journey here. This is all about you guys. And I wanted this 100th interview to be extra special. And Holly definitely delivered that. Now, Holly was the 2016 Ironman 70.3 world champion and has completely been a dominant force in the 70.3 circuit. She was the runner-up in the 2019 Ironman world champion after coming off a fractured ankle back at Oceanside 70.3 in 2018, one in which she suffered from in the bike leg and still managed to race second overall. She joins us today with a motivational chat about her story through her triathlon journey, the PTO, its mindset moving forward from COVID, and so much more. It's honestly a great chat, guys, and I can't wait for you to listen to it. And of course, be sure to share the episode and leave a review. Now, let's get into it. All right, so Holly, welcome to the show. How have you been keeping lately? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, doing pretty good. Um, I'm surprised like how much time has gone by during this like COVID time. Um, It just seems to like, we're just used to now just like ticking by the weeks and it's kind of a bit scary how, how much time I've managed to just like bide. Oh my God. It's so true. It's been a weird situation, right? I mean, it's funny listening to everyone and uh, their perspective on it lately. You know, some people found they've just been able to relax a lot more. Some people have found they've been able to train a lot more. So it's, uh, it's always interesting to hear what other people have found with their time. 
Yeah, I mean, it's totally individual. And I feel like for me, I found like I've just gone through different waves of like, you know, we had no idea going into this how long it was going to last. So at first for me, I was like, okay, I'm just going to, you know, dial things back a little bit and just like, you know, go full on forward and just, you know, races will eventually start back up and, you know, had no idea it was going to last this long. And, and like, I didn't kind of anticipate just the like general stress of it kind of creeping up as well as then training stress on top of that. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of months, then I kind of had to reassess a little bit and, you know, see no races on the horizon to be like, okay, we need to dial it back a little bit, have a bit of a break. Um, So for me, it's kind of, there's been kind of definite phases and kind of reevaluating and um, yeah, it's definitely a journey. For sure. And one of the things I could think of too, and I'm just looking at this from an age groupers perspective. So I can imagine it's 10 times harder for a pro. But when I, when I was first, I was trying to be optimistic at the beginning and I wanted to keep training hard because I thought, you know, if I miss my first couple races, there'll still be some later on in the summer. But, you know, one after another, once you start seeing them get canceled, it's uh, it's a little disheartening. And then you start to wonder what's the best plan of attack because typically you structure your training schedules around a race season. So it's been quite different for everyone. Yeah. And um, when the world champ getting delayed to early next year got called, that's mm-hmm. when you're kind of like, for me, at least I kind of recalibrating to be okay, that's when I want to be at my peak. So kind of side, you know, going back from then and, you know, trying to just be smart about it and what I want to do now. So it's always just kind of reevaluating with what the new what the new information is, because we're all scrambling for information. A hundred percent. No, it's so true. And you know what, there's absolutely so much to talk about with triathlon in these current times. And I guess before we fully dive into that, let's go back a little bit here and, and let's hear a little bit about your background at first. I mean, as I guess as to where you're from, where you grew up, and ultimately I think would be pretty cool is when did uh, triathlon all begin for you? Oh, um, I mean, I've, I've said this story quite a lot. Um, so I'm a triplet, um, grew up in the UK in a small um, kind of town and Grew up in swimming primarily, um, did a bit of cross country at school. I wasn't that great at swimming. My brother was like the hotshot athlete um, and I was the one that tried really hard, but it never really paid off. So I kind of fell into triathlon as more of just something different to do that I could have, you just kind of divert my attention um, to. And I just really enjoyed it. It was like totally the opposite to swimming which to me it was like this goldfish bowl like you work really hard in training and then you've got you know two minutes or a minute and something to like perform at and like I just I just trained but way better than I raced and I really didn't enjoy racing that much um and so triathlon was like totally different and I kind of just but I was really okay with swimming just not being like just doing it to be as best as I could be and not like shooting for Olympics or anything else like my brother was. Um, So then like triathlon, I just enjoyed getting better. And, um, you know, I was as a 16 year old riding with a local group of guys um, doing like a chain gang being totally helped. Like my first time I rocked up was with like not bike shoes with just trainers and, um, kind of like really um, just grew up in it and 
did the like ITU scene, but like um, in the UK, they have like a really good domestic kind of program that you can just work your way through and did uh, French Grand Prix racing and some ITU stuff, but eventually like it just didn't suit me. And um, that kind of short course of racing, just the run was so much more important and I was more of a strong swim biker and um and it was after going to Commonwealth Games in 2014 um that's when I made the switch to long course because I'd kind of done a couple just kind of dabbled in um 70.3s and I was like oh this is great this is you know no pressure um, no fighting in the swim like and it just seemed to suit me a bit better that it was just the fastest swim bike runner that wasn't so much just you know pedestrian pace on the bike it could be gearing up for a run where I'm counting the girls with me that could you know outrun me so um, and then I moved to America in 2015 um, and then worked my way through 70.3 really Incredible, right? And so you're born and raised in Great Britain, but uh, now, of course, you reside permanently in California. So that must have been quite a big change, right? Yeah, it was. Um, I just, you know, I always had this dream of just being in the sun, training kind of all year round. And because I used to go on like training camps in the winter when I was back in the UK, and just California seemed to be this like dream. And um, I was working with a coach, Matt Dixon, when I first moved over, oh, nice. and um, and yeah, just kind of, I just loved it here. I loved that it it kind of took me out of overtraining in a training camp, and then you know, kind of being a little bit ill or injured coming back, and just being able to be more consistent. And it's just more of a lifestyle here, and um, I love it. Yeah, awesome. No, it's so true. California is incredible. I've been there. I've just been there on vacation once, but it was, that's what we still say. Me and my buddies who were there, we still say that was probably the best trip we've ever went on. It was a really nice place. I could imagine being a triathlete down there. It'd just be that much more special all year round. It'd be pretty neat. Yeah. And it's funny. There aren't many triathletes here. I, think I know. It's I'm shocked. Expensive, but um, but yeah, <laughs> it's, it's great. It's great for training. And it's just, it's just like, like I say, it's just like a lifestyle thing. It's yeah, it's nice. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. And I guess like, did you ever think, I mean, growing up or I guess at what point could you see this being a reality that you would be a professional triathlete living in California? Because ultimately when you made that switch from ITU to 70.3, then you kind of recognize that well, I can really take off from here and make it a full-time gig. Um, I don't really know when I actually thought like it could be like a career because I just never did. Um, you know, I always mm-hmm. thought I can do this for as long as I can before, you know, and I always had the backup of I could move in with mum and dad back home. And, you know, I never thought I could actually like it could be a career. I never thought that. And I, you know, one, I didn't think I'd be good enough. And I just had no, I was just very naive and in a good way, but just had, mm-hmm. you know, no expectations of that. And I think because I saw my brother, you know, really early on you know Olympics was everything and that the way my mum kind of felt about it too I was so turned off by that that I never kind of fast forwarded and looked ahead at stuff it was just more about me being 
as good as I could be and not taking myself so seriously. And because it kind of, you know, you know, talking about my brother that he didn't end up making the Olympics. He was making Olympic trials and everything in swimming and then got picked up um, for modern pentathlon, you know, and the, like, the Olympic track program and, and he ended up getting injured and, you know, that didn't materialize and it kind of really, it really affected him. And I kind of really saw that. So in, in one way, I, I really hated it growing up that I didn't have that, that same thing put on me, but I think in the long run, it really helped me. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. And you say like, it's so true because out of all the ITU athletes I've spoken to and the Olympic athletes, there's so much pressure on those athletes and for so many years too. And so, I mean, I guess like going through all these different styles and, you know, moving through the ranks, going through ITU and 70.3, were there ever, or was there a specific triathlete out there that you looked up to or inspired you to kind of keep going? Or was it like a coach per se or? Gosh, I don't know, really. I just, I really loved it. And I think I, I was also, I just loved proving people wrong. And I think I was always like, no one thought I would, be any good and and that kind of really drove me and I've always yeah I've just always loved proving people wrong more than anything and (laughs) proving people right (laughs) yeah no it's true that's good right that's the motivation some people need I I love that that's awesome but at some time that has to change because when like <laughs> you achieve things, you realize like, oh shit, now, now people expect that of me. <laughs> yeah, it's true, eh? Oh, that's funny. No, good stuff. And I mean, I, I guess before, before we move on this topic here, I know everyone's probably wanting to hear this answer because you spent some time in the ITU and you continue to dominate in the middle distance or the long distance, I should say the 70.3. But if you have any further thoughts on a timeline for a possible full Ironman debut? So before this all happened, I was planning to do um, my first Ironman in St. George, which was oh, wow. going to be in May, <laughs> which was like, how many Whoa. months ago now? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So like, I kind of let it slip a few times, but I wasn't going to put myself on a start list until I was like 100% sure, um, just because I'm like curious and I eventually want to do Kona and um mm-hmm. I kind of just wanted to go on my terms and kind of slip in no one really you know know I'm doing it and and St George I love and I you know it's a drive away from LA so if it it went really bad <laughs> yeah <laughs> <then I> could, <laughs> pack up put everything in the car and <laughs> get home as quick as possible but um so yeah that that all got pushed out and and yeah now now no idea really but oh jeez, yeah, yeah, that's right, eh? No, it's actually same here. It was gonna be my first. Well, Challenge Roth would would have been my first full one forty point six. Yeah, that was supposed to be in July. So yeah, we both kind of got kibosh there, but that's all right. Next year, right? Yeah, potentially, potentially. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. No, good. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say one of the questions I want to ask you was if there was any particular race that was on your mind, if you ever considered it, but uh, I think that's kind of made it pretty clear. St. George would be the, the go-to, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I just like, I love St. George and it's like a hard technical, not technical, but like a lot of climbing. Like I couldn't do, especially as my first Ironman, something with lots of laps or flat as a pancake. Like it, right. Like I've said before, that I'd rather poke my eyes out before doing an Ironman. So <laughs> I think I just need something to keep me keep me interested. And 
but still it seems like a hell of a long way and I'm I'm just curious more than anything because I think 70.3 is a hell of a long way and I just couldn't even imagine doubling that <laughs> it's so true honestly I mean <laughs> uh well let's dive back into the 70.3 circuit here I and mean, of course I think it was the so 2016 70.3 World Championships would probably be, I think, your biggest moment. But what would you say was the biggest breakthrough race for you that really shifted your status as a pro triathlete? Like, was it was it that World Championship win, or was it a time before that? Yeah, definitely the World Champ um, win in Malulabar. I mean, I remember even at that race because I'd won a few races. I'd won Alcatraz, Montremblant, maybe one more. Um, Santa Rosa before so it was kind of like you know quick quick sweep before Malulabar and then came in and I was pitched as one of the like five favorites and I remember thinking why the hell am I (laughs) one of the five favorites like I'm not and on the NBC interview they wanted me to like you know say because they want you to say like oh I'm going for the win blah 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 and I just wouldn't do it. I just said, I gave them really shit answers. Like, I just want to swim, bike and run as fast as I can, which is true, but it just isn't what they want to hear. And, right. uh, but yeah, that was kind of the moment when, when things changed afterwards, which, you know, it was amazing for me because I then had sponsors and like I had a few partnerships and stuff before, but um, that's when I kind of was taken seriously and um, things changed. Yeah, no, that's, it's fascinating to hear those moments because sometimes you forget the grind as a, you know, as a professional triathlete going through over the years to position yourself to do so well in this sport and become so well recognized that it, it's neat to kind of hear it back and look back at that moment. But it's pretty fascinating that that could have been the turning point and now has given you your status in, in the triathlon realm because the 7.3 circuit, you seem to uh, do extremely well. So that's yeah, awesome to see that. And I, so I guess from 2016 onward I was particularly paying close attention to your race results and it's unbelievable because there's actually very few races over the last four years that you didn't make the podium uh, but I guess it wasn't always an upward trajectory right I mean there were a couple injuries along the way yeah um so after 2016 um I like obviously signed a bunch of sponsors um and so I came out 2017 like with because I've never been in that position suddenly like you know people are investing in me people are betting on me and I didn't really handle it very well I kind of put way too much pressure on myself and kind of because I was just so scared of being a disappointment to people because you know it was so much easier before being like the underdog like no one you know that was just for me a very comfortable position so being in the opposite when, you know, I was there as the favorites of some races and um, yeah, it was, it was tough. And like, I remember my first race coming out in Oceanside in 17, I won by like 10 minutes or something. And like I could have like backed off, but I was just like, you know, gunning all the way to the line and just like killing myself all the time. Um, just like very aggressive, but it was out of this, like so like fearful of, disappointing and then that's when you kind of like go through things that you shouldn't and I remember I was meant to take I was like racing a couple back to back and then I was meant to take a week off and um which my coach had set me and and I didn't I just I was too scared you know to take time off and 
you know, thought I was going to lose too much. And, and, you know, that's when I kind of had some injuries and stuff creep in and it's all just like a learning experience that then, and it really helped actually going through like injuries and your sponsors kind of sticking by you and realizing they're with you for the long haul and they believe in you and you don't have to you just learn to kind of live with it in a very different way and you think oh my gosh we're actually together in this and um and I I'm really lucky I have just like some amazing sponsors that are more like family now um so yeah it's just it's just been a it's been a learning thing more than anything Absolutely. No, it's true. And that is amazing to hear though, but I can imagine the added stress once you, yeah, once you, uh, get up with a full set of sponsors after coming off a big wind and there's a lot of expectation too, and that's definitely hard to overcome. So it's, uh, you know, I can think of that when I had the interview with Annie Hogg when, after she won and uh, the Ironman world championships, and it was incredible feed for her. But then when you think about it, there's once you're at the top, <laughs> Uh, it's it's hard to stay at the top, right? Like there's a lot of pressure, like oh. uh, unless you find good ways to cope with it. But yeah, it's I can imagine it's very stressful. Yeah, I mean, my mom said something when I was a teenager, saying, "Oh, Holly, you never want to be at the top because there's only one way down." <laughs> <laughs> and I remember that, and thinking like, "Oh, hell no, I'd rather be at the top." <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, it's no, that's true. good. So, but you can you be humble? Like you just have to know that, like. Mm-hmm you're going to be beaten and it's good to be humbled and, you know, have bad races and stuff. So then you, you don't get so precious about it. A hundred percent. I totally agree with that. And I think you do that really well too. And, and looking ahead. So actually that's one of the races I want to talk to you about a little bit more in detail was uh, just a little more detail about your injury that the one you raced through in Oceanside 70.3. <laughs> uh, I think, I think most people know that, but uh, we do yeah. a little quick synopsis kind of what happened there because uh, you still did really well in that race despite everything right yeah I mean running on a broken foot uh, <laughs> I don't know how crazy. I, really, I don't know how I did that um like I was like limping through transition thinking <laughs> oh my god my foot doesn't fit like my just foot doesn't fit in like the bones aren't right and wow. I was like just like heavy limping thinking oh my god how do I stop how do I and for some how I just like got over it and but then the minute I stopped I couldn't walk I couldn't put any pressure on it um but I have to kind of for you to understand like I'd have to go back so that was in April and before the island house triathlon in the year before that in I think it was like November um like 10 days before out on training ride I crashed um just stupidly like lost my hands I was riding super early and it was all under shadows and I didn't see a big hole in the road and just lost my hands and like I got a little bit banged up got picked up and I was going to my PT so we went down everything was fine I'd never complained of my ankle um but then that evening like, you know, bruising and stuff is kind of like progressing. And my ankle went from like zero to a hundred worst pain I've ever been in. I was, you didn't know whether to go to A&E. I was phoning my PT in tears saying, you're going to think I'm crazy, but I think my foot's broken. 
and I somehow managed to go to sleep and like I you know taking ibuprofen and sleeping stuff and um and in the morning I could like kind of walk on it so I'd just got myself to the pool and tried to kick like just slowly kick for you know 20 minutes or whatever and but somehow you know somehow managed to go to the island house 10 days later race well over three days um came third like to flora and um i think it was gwen that year and then seven days later race bahrain win that but i just had this like weird like um we had like clicking in my ankle. There was some something going on that just didn't feel quite right. Um, and then fast forward to Oceanside, which was, you know, how many months later, that was kind of just dealing with this foot thing. It just wasn't quite right. Um, but there wasn't really any pain. I just felt like it was this kind of locking of my foot. Um, and it was when I was riding on the bike, um, I like was driving out of the saddle and I like hit a pothole and my foot kind of went over and my just foot gave way. And I like nearly, nearly like fell off my bike. Um, wow. And that's, that's when it did not I just heard this crack and, and that, yeah, I think that's, I think I must've, when I crashed, you know, back in November, um, I think I like started a fracture or something and then fully broke it um, during the bike ride. And then, I, you know, strapped my shoe even tighter and finished the bike and totally forgot about it until I dismounted and, you know, my foot nearly gave way. Um, but yeah, it's, it was just a weird story. And so that's when, <laughs> when I saw um, one of the doctors, cause I saw quite a few doctors and surgeons um, and they said, you know, you won't come back from this. Um, cause it was a straight, straight through fracture of my navicular which is just a gnarly bone to break because it you know a lot in a lot of people it doesn't recover and um just because where it is it can you know the way the surgery is and stuff it might not go very well I don't know but there was a lot of people that said that you know I wouldn't be running again and so I was like well well is there any point in having the surgery can I just see if I can like keep going for a couple of years and she's like oh no you can't run through this and I was like oh I think I can because <laughs> I did but I did just don't know how I did wow that's incredible and the I mean it seemed like a scary road to recovery there by the sounds of it but uh you seem to do really well. like can you tell us about that recovery a little bit because it seemed to be pretty good because you got back and uh got back in racing and did really well right yeah so I mean that was in April like first week of week of April Oceanside um and so the first surgeon I saw was like okay we'll cast this up six weeks you'll be good to go so I was like amazing sounds great sign me up uh we were getting CT scans every two weeks and it just wasn't healing and so he's like okay no worries we'll do surgery so at that point I was you know going to see a few surgeons and then I saw the Dr. Doom, I call her that, you know, who I said previously that said I wouldn't um, come back from it and my career basically was over. Um, and then I saw another surgeon who, you know, does a lot of the um, 
American track and field athletes. And he was like, it's a, it's a gnarly injury, but you know, you'll be fine after 16 weeks or whatever, which at that time, you know, 16 weeks wasn't a death sentence. So I was like, okay, I'll take that. And he was really confident and I just believed in him. So I went up to Palo Alto to get surgery with him. And um, yeah, then I was just on 16 weeks till running and it was pretty much, you know, I didn't, but I'm glad I had the, you know, the bad prognosis before because then I really didn't push it when I got, you know, set up with this surgeon and everything and we just did everything by the book. I never, um, and I think that's what really, that I always like held myself back that, that it kind of seemed like a smooth progression. And I was back, back running in like September, I think. Um, and then won my first race in December in Bahrain. Wow. No, it's so incredible. And you know what, that's a really cool story of obviously, of course, like, I mean, I think everyone's glad that you didn't just go with, you know, the first or second opinion on that. And you, you explored other options and you ended up coming out really well. And you're right. I think the silver lining behind all that is you really took it easy and let yourself relax there. So that's amazing to hear. And it's, it's funny when I just, I think about that story that you're, you're running on that ankle that through that race and still finishing it, it's just incredible story of what adrenaline can do and getting in that race mindset. So it's, that's a, that's a perfect story of it right there. That's incredible. Or stupidity. I do say that. Like, I don't <laughs> recommend anyone should run through no. ankle. But I just honestly thought no one would believe me. <laughs> no one will believe it's broken. <laughs> That's funny. So, you know what, I guess, I mean, as we uh, speak in all these races, I have to ask, I guess, before we move on to what's ahead here. Um, so throughout all these races, what does a pro triathlete, I guess, like, what do you do after these big 73s? for celebrations like are there are there after parties for the pros or is it just like a focus on a cheat meal and rest or what's it look like from your eyes after a big race I mean I definitely like to reward myself after things so that's either like meals and um candy is like a big motivator for me um and obviously a few drinks but it depends like if I'm racing the weekend after or um Mm. And it depends like where I am. Like I love, like when I was in last year, I raced in like Vietnam and other places. So we had a big party after there because the like organizers of the race, like, you know, had a after party for all the pros. So that was really cool. But there's not, not for many races. Um, that's the case, but except for 70.3 worlds, like I will definitely go all out after 70.3 miles because that's like always the one race of the year that's kind of you put everything into so you definitely need a good blowout after that for sure (laughs) awesome no that's cool it's funny to see it's very race dependent as you kind of said and i know i guess you guys factor in your schedules as well but yeah i've noticed depending on what race i'd went to for 70.3 that there'd be there'd be quite big after parties or i shouldn't say there were plan but there's just big after parties at you know local pubs that sort of thing then you go to others and it was just it, everything was completely shut down after people were just going out for a nice dinner and and shut yeah. it down so it's a uh, very very case dependent on uh which race location yeah and i guess who's racing like the people yeah. families and stuff aren't so much to go all out on a big night out but uh <laughs> and as well how well you've done like if you've had a shitty race you've, <laughs> 
oh, I'm over this. I want to go home. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. No, good stuff. Awesome. Well, I mean, let's switch it up here and we'll talk about the 2020 season, or I guess I say lack thereof 2020 season due to COVID, (laughs) but uh, like what has this been like for you? I mean, I know we talked about it a little bit, but can you kind of walk us through how this all played out from your end? Because I know, as we mentioned earlier, everyone is quite a bit impacted in their own, in their own sense. And you had your ups and downs, but uh, like, where are you at the current state? Are you ready for potential racing if it happens near the end of the year or early January? Kind of what are your thoughts around all this? Um, so early on, as soon as this started, I was like, okay, we won't be racing for like the next month or two months. And, you know, after things kind of progressed and, um, you know, we just see races getting canceled and, and now I suppose like, and I think everyone's different. Like some people are in the camp that are just super hopeful, you know, we'll get the go ahead, you know, in four weeks time we'll be racing. And um, whereas I've kind of accepted and, I, you know, I may not be, I may not be uh, correct or, you know, um, but I think at least we were not going to be racing. All of August races are canceled. So we at least know we're not going to be racing in August. September's still looking a little shady we don't know if travel will even start up and um so I think like maybe maybe the end of September or October we'll start racing and so that's what I'm kind of hedging on that I'm kind of building up to them but even even with that that our world champs is going to be I mean say is going to be hopefully is going to be early next year so I would kind of be just like pushing my whole season back. Um, So I wouldn't want to be like at my peak fitness at the first races I'm doing. I kind of build throughout the season. And, uh, and, you know, at this point that could be still like super hopeful and not realistic. Um, But for the time being that that's what I'm kind of going off. No, for sure. And yeah, everyone's different, right? I guess there's nothing set in stone for everyone to follow. So it's kind of up to any anyone's guess as to what's the right approach for it. Uh, I'm thinking about the people at home listening in here, if they're uncertain on what they should be doing as far as training, because I know a lot of people still want to train. Uh, I guess kind of the su- suggestion is obviously you're not going for your full potential peak kind of as you would currently, right? Yeah. I guess you're kind of keeping it, keeping it pretty base fitness and going from there and kind of wait and see how things go. Yeah, definitely. I'm just kind of doing more of a kind of base period, but doing things like things that I wouldn't really do in like race season. Like I'm hitting strength a bit harder now with my PT and, you know, so I'm sore, you know, do that twice a week, like pretty heavy weight. So I'm like pretty sore all week, which normally I just wouldn't be able to do because it would mess with my training too much. And I would it just wouldn't be okay to be that sore. So um, there's always just things you can work on. Like everyone has weaknesses and there's just times when you're like, okay, this is a great time to, to use it for a good. And so it's not feel like it's wasted time. And, and I feel like everyone's got different things that they want to work on. So um, there's just no right or wrong answer. And I feel like that's, Mm -hmm. that's the biggest thing to get through to people. 
Yeah, no, it's fantastic. It's a good way of looking at this in this current situation. So uh, just making the best of it, right? And yeah. one of the cool things I saw actually that, that really shined bright to me through this whole thing in triathlon uh, was the PTO, of course, the Professional Triathletes Organization. And, you know, how in times of complete global uncertainty, they actually stepped up and, and helped their athletes in, in a lot of ways. I actually truly believe that timing where the PTO was officially rolled out when they did was actually a saving grace because, uh, you know, that was really their time to shine and they definitely did that. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, they've been the only like certain throughout this. And even though, you know, the Collins cup wasn't able to happen, the fact that they, and they, they had, you know, no obligation to do what they did with paying all the pros. Um, but really stepping up when, you know, the pros needed it. it was just, yeah. I mean, I was so surprised that, you know, anyone would do that. And um, it just goes to show how, like how important they feel the cause is and, um, and how serious they are of making changes. And, and that's why I'm really excited. I do think the only race that, you know, is certain to go ahead this year, I shouldn't say anything is certain, but the most certain we can be is the PTO race in December in Daytona, um, because it's, you know, just a pro race. And, we can all be like pretty isolated or whatever. And um, so, you know, at least with, you know, this all being set up this year, it couldn't be more perfect from our side that we have the PTO now. Oh, for sure. And you know what? The Collins Cup, I think it's it's one of the most exciting things I've seen in a long time coming. I was a big fan of Super League when that rolled out, but this is really cool and it's right up my alley as well. So, I mean, I can imagine you you were quite eager when the announcement came out about the format of the Collins Cup, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, anything just to change up that, you know, I always say like, what, what would make triathlon more exciting? Like, how would I get someone like my sister, who's not, you know, she doesn't really care about triathlon, but what would get her to watch it? The same reason I would watch, you know, basketball or whatever. It's because you're like invested in the players. And whereas like, if you can be in your like country or whatever, it's like something else to get behind and, being an exciting format and going, you know, it's shorter intervals. So there's more action all the time. It's kind of, it just makes that bit more like viewer friendly and um, yeah, watchable. For sure. That's it. It's super spectator friendly. And that's what I can't wait for. I'm excited for the day when that Collins cup goes live because I think it'll be one for the history books. And of course, all the hype around this will be that much bigger after a season of really no triathlon. So it's it's going to be, <laughs> yeah. going to be pretty exciting. <laughs> Yeah. So I guess throughout all this, like what have you learned as an athlete overall? I know we spoke on as many negatives as there may have been with COVID and um, there's been some positives as well, but uh, what sort of changes in your daily routine or kind of outlook moving forward that you'll make in your life or in your training that you'll continue to keep from all this? Uh, I mean, the big thing I suppose that it's going to be, it's going to be strange how we kind of move on from this. Cause I think we're always going to be a little bit more cognizant of the risks of, you know, just being in close proximity with, you know, people that you don't know. And, and I've always been super like, you know, before a race start, like come and give me a hug. If you see me in the morning, like it's, it's good for my like pre-race juju. Like I, I just like feed off other people's energy and I love that. And I just, you know, I'm always like bopping around on the race start and, and that kind of adds to it. And I feel like, oh, that's, that's kind of a shame that I, 
may not be able to do that now or it's not really safe or sensible and I don't know like in time goes by whether you know whether that'll be a bit more lax and you know that threat isn't there but but definitely even like traveling which I've always been hyper conscious anyway and and I've always like taken a mask whenever I've been in the doctor's office um in case for a flight and I but then I've never had the balls to actually wear it on the flight which <laughs> I feel like now I probably would because I'm always there with my Dettol wipes wiping everything down I've you know got my stack of vitamin c that I'm just like you know chain drinking on the flight so um but now maybe I'll have the courage to wear a mask on the flight too. yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's funny no, that's good. Actually, you know what? That actually kind of, you started to talk about some of your your little tips there. And I kind of want to expand on that a bit because I'm sure many people are curious about, you know, just kind of get a glimpse of your day-to-day, either like nutrition or or biohack routines, kind of like, you know, loading up a vitamin C when you go out for a, on a plane, like little things like that. Are any of those kind of little hacks or tips that you'd like to share? I mean, like first off, is there a particular diet I guess you follow or do you avoid certain foods or what's sort of your day-to-day um, nutrition look like? Yeah, I mean... For me, I believe just in balance of all things. So like moderation in moderation. Like, so I love, I've got a massive sweet tooth, but like, so like all, all the time when I'm training, I'm not like, I don't indulge all the time, but it's like centered around if I have a like big, long bike workout or whatever that, you know, I'll treat myself. But primarily I 90% 90% of the time I have a very healthy diet and it's very kind of like protein um, focused. So I'm just like, cause I feel like that's for me, I just do better off a higher protein diet, kind of lower carb a little bit, but more carbs just around training. But then, you know, saying that I have a massive sweet tooth and I will get through bags of candy, but usually like, you know, when I've earned it and, um, so I just like like balance in that. And I also, I don't know if you know, I carve a load of candy, which is a bit different <laughs> than most people, but it's like science. Like I weigh it out. <laughs> I don't eat pasta or rice leading up to a race. <laughs> and I've just got my quota of candy that I have to eat. Um, like when I'm like most insulin sensitive, like, you know, when I'm on the bike or just after a run in my prep sessions before, a race in the three days before and I really look forward to racing for that because I've normally been like super strict leading up to like a key race and then I get I get to look forward to carb loading time with my yeah. favorite clubs um <laughs> leading up to a race so I like to have fun with it it's like for me it's got to be you know sustainable so like being healthy but still like if you like a drink or if you, you know, not to go totally without because, you know, then you'd feel like you're depriving yourself and, you know, there's definitely times that you have to deprive yourself. So it's just, yeah, it comes back to balance. Yeah. 100%. I I love to hear that. And, you know, sustainability is key there to get the longevity out of our sport. So that's really cool to hear. I'm I'm actually very surprised by that, but I love that. That's amazing. (laughs) I I might try that my next race. Yeah. (laughs) Like people just like pile up on pasta and rice like the night before and you feel really heavy and sluggish when you just like consume that much like you know that's right filling yeah. carbs. but if you can do it like between you know just after you get off the bike or you know whatever and mix it in with a kind of lighter lighter diet then it it seems like it does really well so 
mm-hmm. I'm not changing for no one. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to try that. Challenge Wild 2021. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try it. <laughs> yeah, you no, should. Yeah. So, you know what? I guess as we kind of start to wrap things up here, one of the questions I wanted to ask was basically just, you know, as far as being a professional triathlete doing the 70.3 races, I can imagine as with all athletes out there, it takes quite a toll on your body, right? So uh, do you have any tips for age groupers out there listening that um, you implement in your daily routines to sort of like keep refresh or like wind down, calm your mind down, calm your body down, things like that, just to kind of help you perform better in training and stay consistent with it? Yeah. I mean, recovery is like the biggest thing um, for what we do. So like I'm one, I'm really anal about my sleep. I, I have an aura ring that I, I, every morning I wake up, I look on my app to see how, how I did the night before. Um, and like, cause just sleep is so important to me. And if I, you know, it wasn't as many hours that I needed or it wasn't um, as quality as they normally have, then I'd make sure that I had a nap in the day. Um, and like, even before going to bed, I make sure I'm, my, my um, phone's, not emitting blue light I take the sleep you know how it takes the blue light away um and Mm -hmm. make sure I eat early enough winding down in the evening not in bright lights and um I sit in my normatex a couple of times a week um have massages and and I headspace too which is it's been a big thing over the last probably year um which I've I really love and I also like if I can't get to sleep I can even just like do the breathing and everything that the headspace meditation like starts with and it just kind of somehow just like instantly I'll just go to sleep so sorry headspace is that is that an app for meditation yeah yeah it's a headspace meditation app Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's actually really surprising. Yeah. No, I've actually been a bit, I haven't heard of Headspace, but I'm a big fan of those. There's a lot of really good apps out there and you're right. Like it, to get you in the right mindset to actually, you know, fall asleep and ease your mind after a long day. I think they're really helpful. Yeah. It's huge. Like I like doing them in the middle of the day, um, you know, after lunch or whatever, just, I feel like it helps you be calm and it, it always like, there's lots of different ones that you can choose and gets you to like work on certain things like you know there's one on like patience there's every kind of thing mental kind of game that you can work on and that's actually something I used before 70.3 worlds this year of um because they have lots of exercises on like thoughts when they kind of get negative um like self-talk that you have that there were kind of training exercises in the meditations to so you kind of just label them label them as thoughts instead of going into it, if that makes any sense. And Mm -hmm. for me, that really helped for like descending, which I kind of tend to overthink or you, you think, Oh shit, I messed up that corner and whatever. And instead of, I actually used it kind of just out in real life when I'm descending. And, and if you get a thought instead of kind of, you know, then negotiating with it and, you know, reasoning with it and kind of just being absorbed by it, just kind of labeling as a thought. And it just like, you know it makes such a huge difference and it's something so small but headspace is great for that there's like tons of things like that and there's even like sleep cast uh, which I don't really get anything by but I know loads of people um, love to help them go to sleep there's like different 
you know, songs and noises and stuff. But um, but just even the breathing ex- exercises in the first couple of minutes, like I'll just do on my own, like the same kind of rhythm stuff. And then you're counting your breaths. And, you know, I can't even count to 20. I'll be asleep already. Hmm. That's actually really cool. No, I, I'm glad to hear that because you know what? I think we see triathlon as just swim, bike, run, but there's so much more to it, right? There's there's the nutrition aspect of it, um, hydration strategies. There's mindset is so important. So, uh, and of course, recovery, like you just said. So there's lots to it. And uh, it's good to see, hear for a lot of the age groupers listening in here to see that you put a lot of time into all these other complementary things to swim, bike, run. So that's awesome to hear. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, it's important for life as well as training. Mm-hmm. No, 100%. And so I guess if you could go back to the beginning of when you first got into triathlon, I mean, knowing what you know now and kind of what you've been through, uh, you've been through ITU, a bunch of 70.3 races, um, would there be anything you'd change or would there be some advice you might have told your your younger self going through the, the ranks? Um. No, I feel like all the fuck-ups and everything. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> oh, so good. I'm, I'm glad that, like, I wouldn't change a thing. I just think everything's kind of just led me to this point, and I'm grateful for all the experiences that, good and bad, that have kind of, because I just feel like you just learn. You learn through all the good, you learn through all the bad, and, yeah, I just wouldn't change anything. I feel like I've, I've, you know, had a lot of experiences in my time. And that's what I'm really, really glad of. Awesome. Yeah, no, it's true. Really embracing the journey along the way. It seems what that's what you've done. And uh, that's incredible. I hope uh, a lot of people can do that as well. And I think that's a constant reminder that uh, we need to enjoy the process too, right? And um, yeah, I, there's always some hiccups along the way, but I think you said that perfect. There, there would never be any perfect, uh, you know, triathlon journey. So you said it well. No, no. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. You know what? I mean, I could chat all day with you here, but I think that's probably an excellent spot to wrap this up. Of course, you know, I can guarantee probably most people follow you now on on social media, but for the few who don't, um, do you, you have your website up and running or do you, what's your social media handles for Instagram? Yeah. I mean, best way to follow me is probably Instagram and I'm Holly Lawrence try. Um, I also have a website that's kind of not updated very regularly. That's hollylawrence.net, but yeah, Instagram is the best way to follow me. Awesome. You know what? I mean, I can't thank you enough for coming on today. It's been super awesome. And of course, um, pleasure is all mine. And I hope to see you out on the race course one day when things go yeah, back to normal. So much. Yeah, yeah, I know. I hope so. <laughs> awesome. All right. Take care. All the best. Thanks so much. All right. Well, that's a wrap with Holly Lawrence. Thanks so much for listening in, everyone. And if you enjoyed this episode, among others, then please just take that one minute to open up your Apple Podcast app on your iPhone, search Pacing Racing, click subscribe, and then scroll down to the bottom and leave us a quick written review. It takes less than a minute to do, but it goes a long, long way in helping me out. So to all who do that, thanks so much. It's highly appreciated. And other than that, happy training. And if you want to train with me on Swift, then drop me a follow by searching Stephen Langenhausen. Anyway, chat soon. Take care. Cheers.